This is Sex Med on ReachMD. The following episode was recorded live during a ReachMD Innovation Theater in Chicago, Illinois, where Dr. Matt Bernholtz spoke with Dr. David J. Portman, founder and director emeritus of the Columbus Center for Women's Health Research, about hot topics in sexual medicine. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Bernholtz. So, Dr. Portman, can you just give us a little bit of background? You know, it's one thing that, um, you know, to just state where you come from, how you practice, your affiliations, credentials, but... It's another thing to give us an idea of how you got into this practice. You're so prominently involved in clinical research for a number of sexual dysfunction issues. Maybe you can tell us how you got into that field and, and how, what, what work you're doing. Sure. I think that you know, the, the essential uh, nature of, of sexuality, just like eating and the things that we have to do and that we do to, to sustain ourselves and our species, I realize we're so integral to who we are and yet, in, in the practice of uh, OBGYN, and in, in particular, and then medicine in general, there really was this, this gap in knowledge and understanding and experience in, in sexual health. And I thought that that was such a huge disconnect, that something that, that everybody does or most want to do, and yet there was this conspiracy of silence and a real lack of scientific knowledge in the field. I didn't get much training as an OBGYN resident or as a medical student, which is really unfortunate because that's where you first try to get your in various interests uh, and then ultimately land in your specialty. So when I, when I first uh, went into general OBGYN practice, I was, I was very interested in clinical research and actually founded a, um, a freestanding phase two and three clinical research center. And our bread and butter w was you know, contraception, and menopause, urogenital atrophy, uh, abnormal bleeding. So just all the, the things that uh, OBGYNs do. And when we started to realize that there was this gap in treatments available for, for women, as opposed to the, the great progress they made with both PD-5 inhibitors, drugs like Viagra for men and, and, and androgen replacement for men, I really felt that, that that gap needed to be bridged and slowly became involved with the societies that had an interest, so the uh, International Society for Women's Sexual Health, or ISWISH, which I me uh, mentioned, and highly recommend that any of you who want a deeper dive into this get involved in. It's a, it's a great group of interdisciplinary clinicians, so I know somebody asked questions about, well, isn't this you know counseling, psych psychological issue? Well, we have lots of sex therapists who belong, psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, as well as urologists and gynecologists. So I think it's, you have to, to make the effort because it's not something that just happens. And when I saw that it was uh, an unmet need, began to get involved and started doing some of the trials for the various sponsors who recognized that not only was an unmet need, but it was a potential nice market opportunity. The more uh, I did that, the more I, I became engaged with the professional community, the more I read about it and realized that there is a, a whole literature out there but certainly needed a lot more on the, the female side. Right. So you've, you've touched upon a number of really critical areas. Number one, talked about this niche that's developing, and it's growing in an interdisciplinary fashion. There's, you mentioned a, a center that's devoted to this, and it has people from a number of different uh, specialties, a number of different practice levels that are all involved in this and actually focusing on uh, sexual disorders, sexual dysfunction. You also talked about the gaps in knowledge, and I want to touch on that. Uh, real briefly, because in your, your recent talk about hypoactive, hypoactive sexual desire disorder, you talked about it's, it's clearly an exciting time in clinical research because there's this rapid 
expansion of knowledge and what we're understanding. But on the flip side of that, there seems to be a problem in that it's a rapidly expanding field with a lot of knowledge and <laughs> that the endpoints keep shifting. And you talked about some of the studies that were being done with Clobanser and some others where trying to ascertain what were the most clinically useful endpoints was vague. It was difficult, and it was, it was changing. So for our, our audience here, what in the clinical research can they look at and say, that's going to be a, a stable source of information, I can trust that, and what is going to be uh, quickly shifting? Do you right. Think? So the official journal for both ISWISH and the uh, International Society for Sexual Medicine, ISSM, is the Journal of Sexual Medicine. Believe it or not, there's a journal of sexual medicine, and there are it's fairly balanced between uh, male and female sides. So there's there's great original research, and uh, uh, which is both basic basic science. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of that is uh, not well funded here in the states because of maybe it's our Puritan heritage, and it becomes a political football. So that do they gr give grants in this area, it's, it then becomes more of a political issue than an actual scientific issue. But there is a lot of good work I mentioned at, out of Canada uh, where they're looking at uh, the, the basic physiology uh, of sexual health. There's also lots of clinical trial uh, reports in the Journal of Sexual Medicine as well as reviews. Uh, so I think that's a, a good peer-reviewed source. And then just you know engaging with your, your professional societies. But you're right, it, it, the, the sands are shifting. And I think that that's where context and, uh, and being involved with the ever-evolving landscape really comes in handy. You mentioned how, do, how does a clinician figure out whether or not you know, this is clinically meaningful to me. I read this paper and it said that there was this or that. I think one of the things to look at is responder analyses. So, you know, because that's what we're interested in. We're interested in what is a responder like? What, what happens, you know, when I have a patient, if she's going to have a good response, what can I tell her? Problem with, with all clinical studies is, is that you're looking at means and not individuals. So when you look at that small difference, say, in an FSFI desire score of only 0.4, that, that's what the mean is. But it means that there's some women who had a change of, one or 1.5, which is huge, right? That takes them to a completely, you know, from never to some more most of the time thinking uh, or interested in uh, their desire. Um, so uh, that's what we want to know is who's driving the mean in those different directions, which is who do I think may respond? And that's who I certainly am going to advise to continue or, or take the therapy. And then who are the non-responders? And I think that's how we practice clinical medicine. So it's a little challenging when uh, they beat up on uh, the results of this based on a mean. And a, a good example of that is the number of sexually satisfying events, is that in the, in the phlebanserin study, the FDA's uh, statistician said that, well, first of all, the, the sponsor statistician said there was one more sexually satisfying event per month compared to placebo for on, on the average, right? So that means on average. The FDA said there was a half a sexually satisfying event on average, which I'm not quite sure what a half a sexually satisfying event is. So, but that also shows you how confusing means are. So, but it, again, to translate it into responders, if you look at responders, and I don't mean to belittle one more satisfying sexual event, for a woman who's not having that, that much satisfaction, that could be huge. Uh, if she's only having one satisfying sexual event, now she has two, uh, that's meaningful to her. So who are we to disparage and say that's not significant. So I think even the mean is, is significant. But then when you look at responders, 
the number of women who took the treatment versus placebo who had three uh, or four more satisfying sexual events was much more likely in women who took the drug versus placebo. So I think that that's really an important uh, thing to look at uh, when you're trying to parse out whether or not this drug is going to uh, achieve any kind of clinically meaningful benefit for your patient. That's fascinating. I want to touch on that, the term of the responder, because that comes back to perhaps one of the root cause issues here, which is that in our Puritan society, thou shall not respond because thou shall not talk about sex. So you gave us a number of insights in your, in your previous talks about this, this conspiracy of silence, how we can potentially go about that. But first, how do you see that manifesting in either, uh, even in your own practice um, with, with some of your colleagues where it's just difficult to get over this bar of bringing it up, or in practices that you visit um, and other colleagues who might come to you and say, I'm not actually sure the best way to bring this up. If I just kind of make it some sort of checklist review of uh, systems and uh, try not even to look up because it's just so difficult to bring up, Um, or if I actually do, as you once said, a 19-part questionnaire that is not going to be very efficient or timely. So how do you address this conspiracy of silence from a practical perspective? Well, I think if you look, one of the slides that we presented showed, you know, how close, over 80% of the the clinicians, I think it was the primary care doctors, didn't uh, engage or ask about it. And the vast majority, if you look at uh, close to 80%, said it's because they had little or no confidence in discussing it. So I think that's the first uh, hurdle to get over. And, the, and, and personally, that was a challenge for me as well. You, you're, you're, you're brought up in a culture where some of these things are inappropriate to discuss, even in the confines of the exam room or the consultation room. So you have to overcome some of your own insecurities, and that just takes practice. You have to keep at it, and uh, if it's something that you feel is important, which I think we all do, and instead of uh, punting, embracing it, even with your own discomfort, uh, I think that that's critical. The uh, I think that the the other thing is to to normalize and validate it for the the patients who are coming into your office and saying you know this is really common and ask open ended questions so that they they don't 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 clam up. You know, if you say you know you ask yes no questions, you're not going to get a whole lot of narratives. So I think open ended questions, normalizing that this is common. There's a lot of women uh, in, in your situation who experience this. Uh, you don't have to feel bad about it, and I think that there are some things that we can do to help you help the patient open up as well. So I think you know finding out what your own insecurities are and, and what your own uh, barriers are is critical, being honest with yourself, and then also helping your patients be a little bit more open. But it does take practice like anything, and it, you know, you, you can't, you're not going to have a sexual medicine practice overnight, but I think if you make small advances gradually, you'll find that it can be very rewarding for patients because there are things that we can do to help. There was the, the Hippocrates quote uh, that was uh, on the screen that said, uh, cure uh, sometimes, treat often, and, and comfort always. So sometimes just them hearing you is comforting and knowing that this is not abnormal and that it's not all in their head, so to say, although I showed you a lot of neurobiology, so a lot of it is in their head, uh, <laughs> but only in the nicest of terms. So, so those are a few things that, you know, that I've observed. Right. And I'm sure there are going to be some questions about the neurobiology. There's so much to know there, so much to try to retain. But as far as the concept of comfort from you, I think that there's, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think there's still a lot of confusion around the, who the you is in this. Um, whose court is sexual medicine in? Primary care 
Did they punt it off to OBGYN saying, that's really in their territory? Does OBGYN say, uh, I should have a sexual therapist on speed dial, and really it should go out, out, out from there? And then from that, that side, even within the, the practice, from that universe side, one practice, those members of the team, who's bringing it up there too? Is it only in the physician's uh, court, or can a PA, the nurses, can it come out there as well? So I think there's just a lot of confusion. Maybe you can yeah. address that. Yeah, and I think you're right. And, and sometimes when there's no quarterback, the team collapses, right? So uh, I mentioned that the DSM is not where we turn to for how do we take care of pretty common conditions. So the fact that it's been in the psychiatry or the sex therapist domain has, has somewhat limited our ability as clinicians who often have, have therapeutic modalities to turn to to really not, not embrace it. So I think that one, the advances we have in, pharma, uh, in um, sexual psychopharmacology are huge because it will bring it into uh, the physician's office rather than simply leave it in the therapist's office. Uh, but ultimately, it's going to be a very interdisciplinary team that does this because these are uh, complex problems that did not happen overnight. Uh, there's a lot of psychosocial issues that are best handled by a therapist, either a psychologist or a psychiatrist. There may be uh, certain things that are hormonal that your practitioner, your primary care doctor may not be comfortable with. You start talking about using uh, testosterone, which we don't have any available treatments. How do I monitor that, and what do I use? So I think that I would, you know, my my, pre my preference and probably my prejudice is that I think that the OBGYN is the ideal person to uh, to lead this team, but realize that it is a team uh, that you need. You know, I failed to mention that you know when you're talking about a significant dyspareunia, even the pelvic floor th physical therapist is part of the team. So you want to make sure that you have all of those resources. You know, not necessarily on speed dial to punt, but to be able to make sure you can refer. In a, in a logical and methodical way. So I think it is, it, it is going to remain an interdisciplinary specialty, but I think that it's going to take uh, clinicians in each of those areas to, to pursue proficiency uh, in order for us all to work well together. Makes sense. And as someone who wants to take ownership, say, I want to become the quarterback, for instance, uh, in, from at least from my practice standpoint, um, I want to really engage in these conversations. And develop a team of people that I can bring in on from one issue to another. One question I think that is going to come up is what tools, I think, would make your top 10 list as that quarterback? Because there are so many tools out there. Some of them are more practical than others. What as the quarterback, the person who's going to make that first assessment, who's going to bring it up, going to get past their own insecurities or their own uh, sensitivities, what tools can you bring to that patient encounter to more effectively start managing this patient's sexual issues? Okay, so, you know, there are uh, resources. Uh, I, I mentioned ISWISH, so they, they do have a lot of information about setting up a sexual health practice. Uh, that may involve very simple things like having a screener like the DSDS available for a quick review so that you can, without a, a huge amount of time, make a, a, a pretty validated diagnosis. So I think having some screeners that you're comfortable with, I think having your staff understand that this is something that's important and not to brush off, uh, having it as part of, as you mentioned, uh, review of systems. Is if you're going to ask about, you know, when was your last pap smear and, you know, when was your, your last immunization, it, there really should be questions about are you having any uh, sexual difficulties. Do these involve arousal, orgasm, desire, you know, and if so, you know, are you bothered by them? 
you know, so those are pretty much right off the, the DSDS screener. I think that if you're going to expand a little bit more, I think it's important to understand about what's available in the way of erotica or bibliotherapy to recommend to, to patients that, you know, sometimes the uh, cultural issues and just not being responsive to sexual cues can respond to some very modest behavioral changes by giving the patient permission. There's a, a model for this called PLICIT, uh, which uh, kind of can gradually ease into, you know, just from permission, permission for the patient and you to talk about it, mm-hmm. to limited information. Well, here's what you can try. Maybe you should maybe, you know, try to read some, you know, some erotica to get it, it, connected to that part of yourself that you feel you've lost, to, to teach them, you know, give them limited information. And then, uh, Uh, specific suggestions uh, that may get you a little bit closer to where the sex therapist is going to get involved uh, in using certain techniques. Uh, You need to be comfortable recommending uh, masturbation and uh, and toys and lubricants. These are all things that that we take for granted is that, you know, that everybody knows about these things. And there's, you know, depending on culture and comfort, there's some that are not comfortable with that. So you need to, that's part of that permission giving. And, you know, that takes time to, to broach those subjects in a, uh, in a way that is, uh, is, is, is not alarming to the patient, that they feel uh, that that's a, a very helpful recommendation. If you have somebody who has an arousal disorder, you know, focus masturbation and other things uh, uh, can certainly help in that regard, although there may, again, be a need for pharmacotherapy interventions. So those are, you know, the kind of things that we think about when we're, you know, talking about a sexual medicine practice and then all the other adjunct uh, players, knowing, you know, having a good pelvic floor physical therapist to, review, uh, to refer to people who have vaginismus or penetrative disorders or pain disorders, pelvic floor uh, problems, uh, pelvic floor hypertonicity leading to, to pain, uh, and then having a good certified sex therapist available as part of the team uh, as well. A urologist who might be able to uh, assist with the male partner because mm-hmm. sometimes it is, it's a, a, often a couple's problem. You know, if you have a woman with moderate GSM and uh, her husband with moderate ED, right, that is a recipe for failure. You know, a, a, a highly functional partner and, you know, a moderately affected partner may be able to get by, but if you have, uh, have both who need treatment, then it's important to, to take that as an interdisciplinary and as a couple's problem. And I think that also, uh, that couple factor is that uh, welcome the partner into the, uh, the conversation. And by partner, I mean male or female. I think we have to, you have to be open and acknowledge that not everybody is having heterosexual, normative, vanilla sex. Uh, you have to be willing to talk about some of the, the alternative uh, lifestyles or just simple uh, differences uh, in, um, in preference. Uh, and you, again, it's a matter of comfort. It takes you know, a great deal of time uh, to do that. You're not going to start out you know, right off the bat talking about dildos and vibrators the first time you have a conversation about sexual health. But eventually, you, know, you will get comfortable because you know, it's natural. And you know, if you can make the patient comfortable, uh, then, then they'll welcome the, the, the su- suggestion. And have you found any differences in follow-up uh, compliance rates in bringing in partners? Uh, does that help improve the follow-up? Because if it's inc- uncomfortable uh, for patients to bring up and it's as uncomfortable for uh, physicians and other healthcare practitioners to uh, bring up not just once but the next time around, um, does bringing in a partner help with that? Yeah, it, it does. And unfortunately, I think this is also part of our, our paternalistic culture is, is that 
you know, often you'll, you'll see a male partner having told the, and I think that somebody alluded to this earlier, is that isn't this just, you know, the husband, you know, asking for the, the, the woman to be put on a medication, mm-hmm. fix her, right? Um, I want to have sex five times a week. She only wants to have sex two times a week, but she has no dysfunction, right? That's just a, a discordance. So that's a pretty easy fix is, you know, you have to come up with some compromising activities and, and, and schedule for them. It's, you know, that, that's not a sexual uh, dysfunction. That's a sexual discordance, and that's very common. So talking to partners about that, saying it's not uh, abnormal for one partner to have greater drive than the other, so you need to figure out how you meet in the middle, uh, and having that conversation can really resonate with the partner who then isn't going to continue to throw it into the other person's uh, uh, field. Uh, it's, it's actually you know, the couple that needs to be addressed. Well, Dr. Portman, before I let you go, anything that we didn't ask you uh, collectively that um, you wanted to either reiterate or just um, impart to our audience? No, I, I just think that this was a, a great format, uh, and hopefully this is, if not... Uh, convinced you to make this part of your practice, at least be open to helping your patients uh, find the, the, the help that they do need. It's a perfect parting comment. I want to thank Dr. David Portman for joining us, and we'll see you soon. Thank you. You've been listening to Sex Med on ReachMD. To access other programs in this series, visit ReachMD.com slash sexmed, where you can be part of the knowledge.